you know, even though most of the time we watch we watch a dance, we see female dancers on stage. That many people think dance is a female-dominated field, but it's not the case when you look at the leadership positions. Welcome to Drexel's Ten Thousand Hours podcast. Our goal is to mine the stories behind our region's innovators, inventors, and thought creators. We'll be talking to experts in subjects from dance to cybersecurity to find out what lies behind the passion for their work, the inspiration for their ideas, and the motivation for their creativity. I'm your host, Maurice Baynard. Sandra Parks is an assistant teaching professor at Drexel University's Westfall College of Media, Arts, and Design. In addition to her work as a choreographer, dance educator, film producer, and editor, Sandra is also the founder and director of Women in Dance Leadership Conference. All right, so uh, Sandra Parks, welcome to the 10,000 Hours. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. No, we're really excited to have you, and I have a bunch of questions that I'm really interested to ask, but let's start at the very beginning. Um, so where were you born and was there any indication when you were young that you would go- grow up to be a professional dancer? Um, I was born in Taipei, Taiwan, and um, I went to take dance lessons when I was young because my parents thought I was too short and uh, and, and perhaps in, on my, in my dad's opinion that I was not as a healthy kid, uh, by him looking at me, by all means, he's not a doctor or a physician. (laughs) And, um, so they send me, it's like kind of like after school activities, right? Like you bring home a form and you can pick either this or that. And my parents chose dance and that's really how I started. So I'm imagining that at some point, you developed a love or at least a skill for what you were doing. And do you remember when that was? And yes. What it was? Like what turned the tide? Yeah. So um, in in Taiwan, like everyone has to go through a, at, at the time, you have to go through a national exam um, after you graduate from middle school or junior high school, we call them, in order to enter senior high school. So during my third year as junior high school student, my dad and my mom told me that I should stop dancing for that year because I need to focus on academic um, work. I need to prepare for this exam. And also the time is just impossible for anyone to have any extra time to do anything else but studying. Um, and during that year, um, I realized how much I miss dancing and how much dance means to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's interesting you asked me if, if there was a moment that I knew I want to become a professional dancer. I actually remembered exactly where I was and when that was. Um, so after I took the national exam, my parents took me to China to visit. That was my very first time. And uh, we, we took this really lovely river cruise on the uh, Yangtze River. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was one of the nights that my mom got a phone call from my grandmother um, that I got into the high school that I should get in. (laughs) Um, And my mom told me, and I remember I walked out on the deck of the really lovely um, ship and I looked up, there were so many stars and 
that's when I told myself I'm going to become a professional dancer now that I have got into this high school. That's amazing. And did you dance in high school? Yeah. So um, after my, uh, so during that summer, I told my parents, I said, I'd really much love to go back to take dance classes again. And my dad's uh, requirement was a, a grade average. I have to get a certain grade from my first year in high school or my first exam period, basically. So, um, so I did. And then my parents were, they, uh, they fulfilled what they said and they said, okay, now you can go back to dance classes. So, yeah. So, and basically in during my high school year, I basically go to school during the day. And then in the afternoon, start around four 30 or five, I will go to this dance school right by my high school. I can walk there. I will take classes from about five to eight or nine, depends on my schedule, and then go home, do homework. And every day it's like that, Monday through Friday. And Saturday, Sunday, I will get to do more classes because we don't have classes in school. Right. So there you are. You're a really successful, both um, uncommitted uh, student and dancer. So how do you choose what to do in college and where do you choose to do it? Um, so entering my third year in senior high school, I had a uh, talk with my mom and like, and my uh, couple of my dance teachers. And what my mom came out of that kind of talk was, well, obviously you are not doing anything that's like Chinese or Taiwanese based dancing. You, my training was classical ballet and uh, and then modern dance later, just a little bit. And my mom was like, this is not something we are the strongest in Taiwan. Then where should you go? You know, so a um, couple of my dance teachers suggested that I should leave Taiwan. Um, and my mom agreed. I was really shocked that she actually agreed. Yeah. I was going to ask, were you surprised at her willingness to let you go? Yeah, well, I was really surprised that she, I think, well, both my parents are teachers. So I think they understand what education means to to your growth as a person. Um, and I think that's why she agreed. And um, and then the, the choices were either Houston or New York City, because I have family in, at these two places. And um, I think it was a quite easy choice between these two. Um, so I chose to go to New York, New York city. And, um, but at the time I actually didn't want to go to college. I, at the time I thought I, you know, cause in, at that time in Taiwan, I was actually performing with a professional ballet company already. And, um, and I guess, you know, being really naive, I thought I could just go to New York and start auditioning. Um, and, uh, so I, I did enter a ballet school, um, in New York city. And then I thought I would just start auditioning and become a professional dancers. And, uh, obviously that didn't work. And so I asked around, I was like, so how can I get this thing called a visa so I can stay and work? Yeah. And, um, and I found out, okay, you have to go to a college and then you can start applying, etc. So, so I started uh, auditioning different schools in in New York City, and then I ended up uh, going to NYU because uh, 
my mom again, <laughs> uh, she she said, if you go to NYU, I will support you. So that was easy decision. Yeah, that's an easy call, right? <laughs> yes, very yeah. easy call. So I, I do want to talk some about the fact that you've combined dance with academics. So I wonder if we could pick back up the story. So you went to college, you graduated from college, and then what kind of professional decisions did you make after college? Um, so after college, I joined a, a national and international tour of The King and I, the Broadway show. Right. Um, yeah, it was it was really fun. And um, so I toured for a whole year, went to all different places in the States and ended up in Brazil. It was really amazing. And, um, and then just what moved back to New York and continue to do small projects here and there with my uh, friends or with my um, uh, other teachers. But I needed a, a, again, back to how do I stay in the States, right? I needed right. a working visa to stay. So um, I was uh, at uh, a, a dance studio. It's like a big dance studio that opens to uh, everyone to take classes. I was a scholarship student um, so I, or a slash work study student. So I was working at the front desk and uh, I forgot which, like uh, during a week night, it was really quiet. Mm. And then this lady walks in and wanted to put up a flyer. And so I read it. They're looking for teachers. Oh, wow. And in the school um, out, out in Queens, and uh, and the best part is they they said they will uh, sponsor international teachers. Mm. So uh, yes, the the flyer did make make it to the manager's office. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. but, but I'm pretty sure I was the very first one to call and and interviewed and everything and. Um, and then I guess I was lucky I, I got the job and um, and that's how I started teaching. I did not know I would actually like teaching. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and really fast forward, I, I taught there and then I later moved to Boston um, and I started teaching uh, with a, organize, a nonprofit organization that does outreach in inner city schools. So I started teaching in uh, Boston um, City uh, District High Schools. Um, and after about five, six years of that, um, a dance company I was working with in Boston, the artistic director uh, was meant just talking. And then she's like, oh, yeah, there's this college, uh, Smith College, that uh, our so-and-so, a, a former dance company member, was a guest artist there. And, uh, and she, she knew I was looking for a graduate program. And so she said, you should go give it a try because uh, they, they give full scholarship. So I, so I auditioned. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I was really happy that they accepted me. And so I went through the program and, and then started, you know, looking for positions teaching in higher ed. And that's how I got into higher education. So... I think that's a good uh, segue to talk about uh, your big project, right? So women in dance. And I just thought I'd take a second and read a little bit um, from your mission statement. And then maybe you can talk a little bit about it, like what your thoughts were in founding it and where you hope it will go. Sure. So 
This is what you guys have on your website. Women in Dance provides opportunities in accessing broader and more visible platforms, expanding the voices of artists, scholars, and strengthening the capacity and vibrancy of women in dance making and dance related fields. So what was your inspiration and where do you hope your organization will go? Um, so the idea of women in dance actually uh, took place in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where I was teaching there. I was the program director for dance at LSU at the time. Right. And um, so it's a smaller dance community. But when I first um, got the position, I made a kind of a made a round, basically tried to meet every dance company and um, theater um, in town. And surprisingly, every single director um, is female. And I was really shocked, actually, because most of the time in my career, you meet more male dance company directors. Right. And subconsciously, I was like, well, this is this can this, you know, scenario probably is not everywhere. So I did the research on um in the U.S. at the time, there are about 331 dance companies that are registered. And um, about 82 or 83 companies with yearly budget of $1 million and more. Hmm. And out of the thir- 331 companies, it's pretty even. It's about 45% female directors but when we look at the major dance companies it went down to about 30 right and so i was talking with this um a really great friend and also mentor of my in baton rouge and i said well how can i celebrate this fact that everyone here who's a director in baton rouge are women you know how do i celebrate these women in dance and and then so I for me really is to celebrate what the local community is doing great and and also positive reinforcement, and then also is to bring an awareness to probably non dance um, related audience that you know even though most of the time we watch we watch a dance we see female dancers on stage that many people think dance is a female dominated field right but it's not the case when you look at the leadership positions we still have more male artistic directors and um also male choreographers and you look and then later on we have other researches like done on major dance festivals and how many or major dance venues in the larger cities like how many female directed companies do they present versus how many male, uh, you know, directed companies. And it's always a big, big difference between the presence of male versus female. And so that's really how this uh, organization started. And then so to really think of a a couple ways to, to show this or to get awareness, the first thing I was like, well, let's celebrate the work by female artists. So right. first thing I did was to host the conference um, in 2015. That's when we host the first one in Baton Rouge by collaborating with the local companies and, and theaters. 
And so we only present female uh, work. So as long as the choreographers and the creators are female um, and we have keynote speech, we have panel discussions, we have um, scholarly paper workshops, all presented by female identified um, artists. Um, and it was, it was amazing. And in terms, and fast forward till now, we have hosted three conferences. Now it's biannual every other year. And uh, this year will be the fourth one. Hopefully we can make it in person. And, uh, and the conference moves from city to city. And uh, we've been in New York. We've been in Philadelphia. And uh, now we're moving to Chicago. Wow. And in terms of my goal or where do I see, I think my biggest goal is to create uh, or to establish a uh, academy, a leadership academy to really reach students, female students who are interested in learning dance, um, but not necessarily making them dancers, Mm. um, but to really teach them to see the connections between what they learn in in dance classes with leadership skills um, to create more female leaders in all fields, not just dance, but in all fields. Um, That will be my ultimate goal. This might be really obvious, so I apologize, but I'm Uh, wondering about your research that demonstrates that the more well um, sort of financed a dance company or dance production is, the more likely that there's a man at the top. I wonder, like, what are some of the social drivers that you think cause that to be true? And are things changing? Um, well, if you, if you look at the history, so in Western European country, uh, countries, most of the major dance companies in the history were state uh, sanctioned uh, companies in Europe, right? Right. So that means whoever is in charge of the government will be most likely be able to appoint the person in charge of these DS companies. Mm. And and then the very first privately owned dance company in, in the history, supposedly, uh, it's a ballet company in Russia and was owned by a man. And I'm not sure if that was just the reason. And I think this, this, you know, also a lot of the choreographers, you know, they were also appointed by the company's directors. So then the choreographers were male. And then this kind of, uh, I guess, snowball effect that kind of trickled down to today. Now, the question is, is it change? Is it, is it improving? Is it getting better? I, I do see a change towards the positive um, side, uh, the speed of the change, in my opinion, is too slow, but everything is always too slow for me. So right. I, can't, <laughs> I can't judge that, um, uh, you know, very neutrally on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there definitely, I think the, the awareness is definitely more and uh, companies are now more conscious about what they do and how they choose their next directors. And I think a lot of major dance festivals also used to be directed by male um, directors. They, they, they are now also uh, having 
female directorship. So I think it is definitely moving towards the right direction, and I'm just hoping to see it happen um, a lot quicker and a lot more. Hmm. So in thinking about the way in which um, careers evolve over time, could you talk a little bit about what women, what options are currently open to women once their dance careers as performers are over and where you think it should, what kinds of opportunities should be offered to them and how they can create more and more of those opportunities? Well, I... I'm going to have to guess because I don't, there's not a research done um, on this yet. (laughs) Um, Obviously, I'm going to talk about more of my personal experience and also my friends' experiences. I will say most of the uh, so-called retired dancers, they probably go for teaching, Hmm. right? Because their experience is so so, uh, valuable for the next generation's. Um, so they probably go for teaching or if they go back to school, then they go to different type of teaching, right? They can, if they go back to school, they get a lot of these professional dancers, particularly in ballet companies, they probably enter the company at the age of like 18, 17, you know, they just finished high school. Right. So they might be going back to college and they eventually go back to graduate school so then they can teach in higher education. If teaching is their, is their, um, interest, um, Or some do continue work with the company that they used to work with as like an administrator or maybe marketing um, sort of jobs if the company are are big enough to to hire them back. Um, And then after that, I really don't know. I really don't know what other options they might have. Um, I, I think some do change careers. Mm. Like they do do something completely different from dancing because they've probably finished at the age of what, 35. Right. <laughs> um, and they, they do go on and do different careers. And that's also a possibility. But honestly, there is really not a, a data that we can say this is where they usually go. Mm. I do hope that, um, you know, as a company, the major companies, if they have the resources and they, they should definitely think about what they're, dancers can do afterwards, you know, whether it's professional development in other careers that the dancers show promise or they show interest or, right. you know, letting them do some classes, you know, um, you know, through our drugs or dance program, online program, something like that. So then they can be prepared and not restart all over yeah. when their career is, uh, you know, when they, you know, take the final bow. Um, <laughs> So final yeah. sounds really final. Yeah. A lot of times it's, you know, because they, they retire because they know that's, that's the time for yeah. their physical being to, to be retired as well. So I mean, it, it's such an interesting parallel with professional sports and, and, you know, the time frame where you're sort of viable professionally sort of overlaps as well. And I know that there's a lot of concern that say college athletes, um, they make this decision. Should I become a professional or should I at the same time that I'm sort of at my youth and my peak, should I make all the money that I can? I wonder how you would how you would mentor a young dancer. Should they be thinking about, you know, getting a college degree and maybe a master's degree or 
or developing some other skill because their professional career is going to be a short one? Well, I think it depends on the particular student. Obviously, with our students who come to Drexel um, as majors, obviously, I always encourage them to finish the degree no matter what because they're already part of the curriculum. And um, But if, like, say, a student who is really promising that you know that he or she can enter the professional world when they're young, still letting them know there's options of colleges or classes that they can take while they are performing, right? Because they know, we all know the career is going to be short. Now, what they learn in these courses or in these university programs, it's not just to be a better dancer, it's to learn how to take care of themselves, how to be a better human being, how to collaborate, getting to know different um, subjects that will eventually help them continue their life and not just their dance career. Yes, you can focus on your whole life on dancing, but I think life is definitely more than that. Sandra, I got to tell you, um, talking to you has been a well-choreographed pleasure. (laughs) Thank you. I know I've been sitting on that. I've been sitting on that the whole time. Um, (laughs) Drexel's 10,000 hour podcast is hosted by me, Maurice Baynard. Our producers are Sean Fitzpatrick and Nathan Barrett. Drexel's 10,000 hours podcast is powered by Drexel University. 